we have these crossroads. And you know, either way you choose, your life is going to be different. The universe doesn't exist, but God thinks it does. We have to stop consuming our culture. We have to create culture. Stupidity has a definite evolutionary function. I am all for abolishing stupidity, but before it goes, we should pay tribute to it. Hello and welcome to the Nonsense Bazaar. I'm Sequoia Kennedy. And I'm Willow Truman. Welcome back also to the worst place on earth, Nome, Alaska, 1925. Oh, I thought you were talking about my basement. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's not so bad here. No, it's not. And like, no, it's at least it's better than Nome, Alaska. It is. In 1925. And like, honestly, Nome definitely was not, nor has ever been the worst place on earth. There's worse places. Like Richfield, Ohio. Like Golden Corral. Yeah. You ever been to one of those? No. No. <laughs> Trying not to. I wonder if they have, they might have a Golden Corral in, in Nome. Yeah. It's like the only. Right. Shit. <laughs> but Nome in 1925 was pretty, pretty damn bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and today we're concluding the tale of Leonard Seppala, Togo the dog, and the 1925 serum run to Nome, aka the Great Race of Mercy. Such a badass name. Yeah. I mean, you know, we'll, we'll get to this, but like, this was so heavily publicized. Like, newspaper people had a field day with this shit. Yeah, it I mean, captured how much the is, whole country's attention. How much is going on in these regions of Alaska? You know, it's like no, when mean, something happens, it's got to be big news. Well, yeah, but I mean, this was all of Alaska was dealing with this, but the whole country for a few weeks in winter of 1925. Mm-hmm. was looking at Nome, Alaska. Like, it was the big thing. Cool. Was, yeah. Yeah, so last week, we told the story of how the actually absurd town of Nome was founded, how Leonard Seppala came to Nome, and how Togo, the rascally little shit, proved himself to be the best dog in Alaska. Yes. Yeah. We also saw how everything in Alaska relied on dogs. They were the mail. They were the taxis. They hauled freight. They hunted. Alaska aimed to be a dog country, and they did just that. And fuck the sheep. <laughs> and when we when we left off last week, Dr. Curtis Welsh had learned that the potentially worst case scenario had come to pass for the small town of Nome. An outbreak of diphtheria was not a potential risk anymore, but was indeed currently happening. And the town had only enough antitoxin for about six people. And it was expired. And it was January. And the sea was frozen, so no boats were coming. And they were in Nome, which is the place that touches tips with Russia. Yeah, that's going to be a problem. Yeah. Uh, It was not a great start to 1925. The town sent off a desperate telegram, hoping against hope that somehow they could get the needed one million units of antitoxin before hell itself came to swallow Nome. Yeah, it's also dark as hell, like literally. Probably five hours of daylight about now. Probably less than that, actually. Uh Yeah. So just add that onto the list of just terrible, terrible factors they were dealing with. Yep. Like... How many people do you think just straight up lost their minds up there over the course of just... just Oh, between the cold and the isolation, quite quite a few. Yeah, just in general. Like, did you ever see The Fourth Kind, that terrible mockumentary horror movie about alien abductions? I have vague memories of it. Yeah, that, yeah. that was set in Nome because enough people disappear uh, in Nome that Hollywood yeah. was like, seems like aliens did it. Uh-huh. I mean, it... 
aliens didn't do it. Alcoholism, fucked up sleep schedules, depression, and winter did right. do it. I mean, like, so we have New England winters where we are, right? Yeah, and, they're fine. And the seasonal depression around here hits <laughs> hard. I think it's just who we are as a people, though. Yeah, yeah <laughs> right? So I can't imagine to be in a place where the winters are even like... They suck. Like so much more brutal than what we experience. So, so to see like how people react to our winters and then thinking about their winters. Yeah. Right. I mean, the thing about like, I do feel like there's, there's a thing where when it is so extreme, you're only there if you can handle it. Yeah. If you can adapt. And when something's so extreme that you have no choice, but to deal with it on its terms, it almost makes it a little easier. Right. Well, especially because once you're there, you know, if you're in Nome, Alaska in 1925, and, uh, you know, the seas are iced over. Yeah. You're there. You're there. <laughs> you don't have any choice but to be there. And when it's like. For the time being. If it's like negative 50 out. like So you got to adapt. You, you know, if the weather's if the weather's dangerous, you don't have to go out in it without like serious armor. Yeah. Like around here, nothing changes during the winter. Right. You got to do the same shit you always did. Mm-hmm. There, it's like, oh, okay, this is a thing. You got to prepare. Know? You got to prepare. It's eight months out of the damn year, too. Right. Fuck. And yeah, so no, <laughs> way the fuck up two degrees below the Arctic Circle, they didn't have any diphtheria antitoxins. Bunch of kids were about to start dying. Whole bunch, like a whole bunch of, of natives. Like it was bad. It was very We got to get going before yeah. all the kids die. Yeah. And even if they could find the antitoxin, there was realistically only one way to get it to Nome. A small, almost 50-year-old Norwegian man named Leonard and a 12-year-old Siberian husky named Togo. What if the antitoxin was in their hearts all along? Well, we'll get to that. <laughs> <laughs> so, they ch- but Nome's chances on paper are like, not great. Yeah. On paper, that is. Leonard and Togo don't give a fuck about the odds. Right. In all my sources, even though the serum run is the reason these books were written, the run itself like doesn't take up that much, that, that many pages. Yeah. Well, it's like when I did the Oneida community and that was about the smallest part of the story is the actual right. community. Right, right, right. <laughs> it's basically all the things around it. Yeah, exactly. They're real parts. It's um, it's the context that gives the story the impossibly, the impossibly high and tragic stakes that it has. Yes. But also, importantly and notably- Despite those impossibly high stakes, for Seppala and all the other mushers involved in this, this was just another job. Yeah. Like, they did this shit all the time. And, like, yeah, this is a particularly insane run. And, yeah, Seppala did cover an insane amount of ground in a very short time. And, yeah, the weather was particularly nasty. But that's just what these fucking badasses did. Oh, and, and it's what Leonard wanted to do, it, too. Yeah, like, he tried it, yeah. out other professions. That's what all these guys, they ended yeah. up doing. Like, if you were a musher, it's because you fucking loved it. Yeah, it's because it's you want to be. Yeah. The dogs, too. They loved it. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, Leonard and Togo had been doing this together as a team for 12 years at this point in 1925. Mm-hmm. Like, they, they all just, they just crushed it. They all just absolutely crushed it. But before we get into it, and uh, let's see what the tarot has to say. Ten of Wands, Oppression, Saturn, and Sagittarius. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah, I got it. Yeah. It's a little, 
All right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Sometimes I don't, you know, I never, I always get a little scared by ones that are hard to, to analyze. Oh, but then we always. We always do it. Yeah. But the, and I also get a little, I get, a little miffed by the easy ones. Yeah. Yeah. When they're a bit too on the nose, it's like, no, there's, there's some hidden meaning here too. Yeah. There right? has to be. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I mean, I feel like the 10 of wands, it, it, it's a little on that side. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like I get it. Oppression. Right. Saturn and Sagittarius. Restricted travel. Yeah. <laughs> like, like hardship. Right. Stuff preventing it. Yeah. Like, okay. Got it. All right. No, but it's a good card. I don't want to undersell it. It's true. It's a fine card. <laughs> it's a it's fine the best card, card ever. <laughs> All right. We'll talk about that at the end. Now, we got dogs to talk about. Arf, arf. I love that fucking song. You know what? I didn't think I did, but uh, it's a really good song. Oh, dude, that's one. Of, that's one of my favorite joints of all time. I. Uh, it's a very cinematic song. I was noticing that the audio panning is very good. Like yes. I like how um, I could tell that they put the backing vocals sort of on the the far left and right side, and yeah, the yeah. main vocals sort of towards the center. So it creates the sensation with headphones of like. You know, people talking on either side of you and then someone in the front. Yeah, yeah. Which is really Oh, no, cool. it's very well. Yeah. Don't sleep on the fucking BOC, dude. Yeah. <laughs> well produced. Yes. And also the Grim Reaper was coming for Nome, Alaska. Yep. Yep. <laughs> and once the Nome Town Council had realized the situation, the quarantine began immediately. The entire town was still traumatized from the flu of 1918, and they were not fucking around. Yeah, it hasn't been that many years. No. Yeah. Like seven years. Yeah. Uh, School was closed. All public gatherings were disbanded, like, overnight. Well, They went around knocking on my door. You know how that feels. (laughs) No, this is your buddy knocking on your door and telling you you got to go home. Right. (laughs) Well, we don't know how this feels. We're all, we all might die. Yeah. Not even that. Like, hey, Jim. Your kid might die. (laughs) (laughs) You know, that is a statement that is always true to any parents listening. Yeah, it's Jesus Christ. (laughs) (laughs) Holy shit. Wow. Um, So, yeah, school was closed. Wow, dude. (laughs) You got to be careful. You got to cherish them while you have them. Dude, you're going to drive people into paranoia. (laughs) You're going to make them have a worse time. Cherish your children. Jesus Christ. And your dogs. (laughs) (laughs) 
So school was closed. All public gatherings were disbanded. The theater in town, the Dream Theater, was shuttered and quarantine notices were put up. Jean Summers Wolf recalled much later that despite the best efforts of the adults, she and all the other children like knew that something bad was going down. I remember holding my breath real tight and running past any building I encountered with that big red sign, quarantine, keep out. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Running and holding her breath. Yeah. And like this is a small town in the middle of nowhere. Again, I mean, I know I keep stressing it, but yeah. Mayor Maynard wrote a notice to be uh, printed in the next edition of the town circular, the Gnome Nugget. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Uh, He tried his best for a soothing and calming tone, but the underlying darkness couldn't help but bleed through. An epidemic of diphtheria has broken out in Nome, and if proper precautions are taken, there is no cause for alarm. On the other hand, if parents do not keep their children isolated from other children, the epidemic may spread to serious proportions. All children should be compelled to wash their faces and hands frequently during the day with some mild soap, such as ivory soap. A strong soap is worse than none at all, as it has a tendency to cause the face and hands to chap and crack and render them easily susceptible to the diphtheria germ. Every effort will be made on the part of officials to prevent carriers of the disease from leaving Nome and thereby contaminating the other camps. So, use a mild soap, not a strong soap. And more doctors recommend ivory. I'll always wash the baby with ivory. The sugar pretty like you. Pure, mild ivory. 99 and 44 one-hundredths percent pure. The big girl soap for complexions with that little girl look. <laughs> oh my God, ew. It's like, yeah. so I don't listen to Taylor Swift, but I did uh, just because you can't avoid it on the listening to the radio. There's one lyric from a recent song where she goes, sometimes I feel like everybody is a sexy baby. And I'm like, I don't. Yeah, but um, that definitely made me think about that. Yeah. Like, I want to have skin like a baby. Yeah, no, that's oh, don't you want to <laughs> have baby skin? No, it's super. It's, oh, women can use this soap, but you'll be like a baby. That wasn't the reason. I like. I, it was pure. just the first old ivory commercial yeah. I pulled up. But like, yeah, it's weird as fuck. It's a nice. There's nothing mild about that commercial. No, it sure isn't. The soap might be. Be, but the marketing, yeesh. Yeah. <laughs> ivory. Pure pure ivory soap. Purity. Yeah. So, like, Dr. Welch told his friends, the Walshes, to take their family and go to an isolated cabin outside of town and not return until they heard directly from him. Like, they're saying, like, everything's going to be fine. It's going to be all right. Dr. Welch is like, yo, take your family. Get the fuck out of here and don't come back until I tell you to and not before. There's something kind of fun about that, as long as you have all the right supplies. And you're not already infected with diphtheria. Yeah, and you're not infected. Yeah. Yeah. Because sometimes you can take something as serious as you possibly can, implement all measures, and it can simply be too late. Uh Uh-huh. In the words of one Starfleet captain, it is possible to make no mistakes and still lose. That is not failure. That is life. And uh, the battle to contain the epidemic was completely lost before they even knew it began. Yeah. Yeah. By Saturday, January 24th, Dr. Welch's phone was ringing off the hook with resident after resident reporting fever and sore throat. The count of confirmed cases stood at 20 and (laughs) suspected cases were at 50. All the town could do was hope that their telegram had reached the right people and that the antitoxin could be found. And on that front, they had no choice but to wait. But there was, however, another serious problem that they could start to figure out, assuming the antitoxin could be found. How did they get to Nome? During winter, when goods came in, they were shipped 
to the ice-free port of Seward in southeast Alaska, and from there they traveled 420 miles to Nanana on the only major railroad in Alaska. From Nanana, it was 674 miles west by dog sled across the interior to Nome. This trip took the mail teams an average 28 days to complete. Far, far too slow to save the town. Yeah, that's yes, not going to do. That's not going to do. Uh, Councilman Mark Summers, who owned the mining company, came up with the idea to use a relay to significantly cut the time the trip would take. Mm-hmm. Two fast dog teams, one heading west from Nanana and the other heading east from Nome to meet in the middle at Nilato. Mark Summers knew the only team who could do the western portion, Nome to Nilato, Nome to Nilato, <laughs> Nome to Nilato and back again, Leonard Seppala and Togo. Yeah. They were undoubtedly the fastest dog team in Alaska, and they had done this route before. And they had previously done uh, the Nome to Nulato Trail in just four days, averaging an insane 81 miles per day. Holy like, shit. Like they're legends. Like, that's yeah. 81 miles a day. They're booking it. are fucking cruising. And it's, I get, because Liner just was extremely good at training dogs and, and picking dogs. Um, and Togo was an insane leader. The, uh, the health board's approval of Summer's plan was unanimous, but Mayor Maynard suggested a different option. See, he had long been a proponent of Alaskan aviation. Yeah. And he believed that soon planes would end the crippling isolation that northern Alaska was subjected to every year. Flying the serum in would obviously be much faster, but it was also way riskier. Mm. I was talking to my pops about all this because he spent some time up in northern Alaska in 89 and uh, 1990. And he was saying that even then, like 65 years later, the brutal cold could just pull planes out of the sky sometimes. That's terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck it is. And in 1925, in the earliest days of commercial aviation, planes are still like water cooled. Yeah. So if it's like super cold. It can just freeze the engine. Yeah. And just bolts start like all the all of a sudden that shit that was cool in your engine is now ice. And bolts are flying out of it. The engine's ripping itself apart and you're. Yeah. Can you imagine being in a plane that's falling at like from the sky? <laughs> no, I I don't. I liked. I I was scared of flying for a very long time. I've done it a few times now, but yeah. God damn. Yeah, I don't like thinking about it. No. It's the it's it's the the weight that you have the the ability to think about what the fuck is happening. Yeah. Eesh. All right, that's enough. Of that. <laughs> <sighs> Moving but on. Yeah. So. In negative 40, negative 50, negative 80 degree temperatures, the planes could just literally freeze up far above solid ground and plummet into a fiery wreck, destroying both the pilot and the antitoxin with 100% certainty should anything at all go wrong. Like, you're not, that shit's done. You're not saving the antitoxin after that. Yet there were many interests in Alaska who, unable to let a good crisis go to waste, wanted to use this situation to jumpstart the industry of Alaskan aviation. So Mark Summers went to Leonard Seppala and informed him of the plan and told him to get ready to go as soon as the serum could be located. He informed him that although they were considering an air rescue, most on the council believed that Nome's fate lay in Seppala's hands. Mayor Maynard- That's a lot of pressure. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Uh, Mayor Maynard sent a telegram to the Alaskan um, delegate to the U.S. Congress. I believe it's like a, a non-voting at this time because Alaska was obviously not a state. Dan Sutherland, a longtime advocate for experimental air mail runs in Alaska. The telegram read, Serious epidemic of diphtheria has broken out here. Stop. No fresh antitoxin. Stop. Interview Surgeon General Department of Public Health and tell him to, dis- to dispatch million units antitoxin to Nome immediately. Airplane would save time if feasible. 
And on January 26th, William Thompson, publisher and editor of the Fairbanks Daily News Miner in Fairbanks, the largest city in the interior of Alaska, received a telegram from Dan Sutherland requesting Fairbanks put a plane in commission within 48 hours to rescue Nome. And this was the first William Thompson had heard of the epidemic. Thompson was in his 60s and hobbled from a life of reporting on the frontier and had become obsessed with the idea of Alaskan aviation. Thompson was a sort of propagandist for what he thought could best help the town of Fairbanks. He knew immediately that a successful airmail campaign could re-energize Fairbanks and lure businesses back to town. Hmm. He did also have a sincere desire to help Nome, and if he could arrange a mercy mission, he would be doing all of Alaska a favor. But... All of the regular pilots in Fairbanks were out of town. They had three planes in Fairbanks, and he had no idea what the condition of the of the three planes in Fairbanks were. He had, however, just the other day, met a ready-made hero, Justice Department Detective Roy Darling, who had a little bit of flying experience. It's a great name for a newspaper editor to find to be, mm-hmm. a, be a hero. Yeah, Darling was crippled with one leg shorter than the other after a plane crash had cut his time in the Navy short. He, in 1919, he had plunged 500 feet into the ocean, breaking Whoa. his right femur, fracturing his jaw, lacerating his lower lip, and breaking the arches on both his feet. Holy shit. Um, but Darling said he was ready to go even if he had to go hanging on to the tail of a kite. Good for him. Like this dude, yeah, hell yeah. Fearless. Yeah, and he does have flying experience. However, that flying experience was him falling 500, crashing that yeah. motherfucker into the ocean. <laughs> Right. <laughs> and he wouldn't be flying a kite, though. He'd be flying the Anchorage, a World War I surplus standard J-1 biplane previously used to train army pilots. The mechanics told Thompson and Darling that it could be ready in three days. Since the flight itself would only take three hours, that was good enough. Thompson wrote a piece that was like dripping wet with emotion and read like a rallying cry. It referred to Roy Darling as Gnome's forlorn hope. Do you want to read this? Yes. Yeah. <clears throat> it's fucking so this. This guy, man. I hate this guy. <laughs> the atmosphere is not right for flying. No flyer would fly on a bet on such days as these. Everything is against the game. Yet, the emergency undoubtedly exists and Fairbanks is in the eyes of the flying world. And Noam is our neighbor and our pal. What you gonna do? The answer is go. Yeah. With like weird capitalization and quotation yeah. marks. It's, uh, yep. In a telegram to Nome, Thompson told the town, Be of good cheer. The aviators are all gone at present, but if Washington released Detective Darling now here on official business, he is raring to go to Nome's help. Have wired Washington accordingly. Nome can depend on Fairbanks to bring help, or somebody will die trying. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> all right, Fairbanks. Yeah. So meanwhile, Leonard and Togo were running drills with their team in the Sawtooth Mountains. The snowfall so far that winter had been unusually light. So the team was out of practice. And I say their team because at this point, again, Leonard and Togo are equal partners. They've been doing this together for 12 years and approximately 55,000 miles. They were partners and best friends, completely inseparable. When Leonard was tired after a long day, he'd nap by the fire and Togo would curl up right next to him. Their favorite game was Leonard trying to grab Togo's feet while Togo danced around Yes. Yeah. Great game. (laughs) He's a great game. (laughs) And Togo just seemed to straight up understand Leonard when he was talking to him. One time there was this little like eight mile race in town and Leonard hitched Togo up to a sled driven by a young girl who had never driven a sled before. When Leonard tightened the harness around Togo, he whispered in Togo's ear, go for it. I'll be waiting for you. And Togo sped through the course like a maniac and headed straight for Leonard who was kneeling at the finish line. Once unhitched, Togo jumped on Leonard and the two rolled over and just started wrestling in the snow. 
Oh, that's fucking cute. A reporter said that a few spectators wiped tears from their eyes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's adorable. Yeah, that boy loves his daddy. Yeah. Um, And when Mark Summers went to Leonard Suppel and asked him to run the relay to Nanata for the antitoxin, or the relay to Nalato for the antitoxin, Seppala showed a rare moment of hesitation. Like, he didn't think he should be the dude. Mm. He was a very competitive guy. Like He knew how high the stakes were, and he knew that a 674-mile run against the clock was incredibly dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. But he knew his was the only team that could do it. And he knew that he and Togo had saved each other's lives countless times. Despite Togo's age, Seppala still felt that wherever they went together, he traveled, uh, quote, with a sense of security. So he agreed, and the team ran drills in the Sawtooth Mountains waiting for the call. January 25th, word reached Governor Scott Bone, great name for governor, at the Scott pub. Bone. Scott Bone. Vote for me, Scott Bone. <laughs> I'm home, Bone, yeah. Yes. Right. <laughs> unless you want me to. Unless you want me to. Unless, you, unless the voters tell me to bone, bone him. <sighs> A lot of good bone jokes. Yep. Yep. So word reached Governor Scott Bone, the Public Health Service had located 1.1 million units of antitoxin along the West Coast, and they were ready to be shipped north. However, the only ship available, the Alameda, was days away from port, and the serum wouldn't reach Nome for at least two weeks. At that time, there would certainly be many more deaths in Nome. However, on that same day, Dr. John Bradley Beeson in Anchorage had located 300,000 units of antitoxin and could get them to Nanana in 12 hours. This wouldn't be enough to end the epidemic, but it would be enough to slow it down and buy time for the 1.1 million units to get there. Mm-hmm. Dr. Beeson had actually met Seppala once when he had to make a 500-mile house call by dog sled to treat a sick banker. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. The trip was so rough that Beeson had to be tied to the fucking sled. Whoa. <laughs> While tied to the sled, the sled broke through the ice over a lake and Dr. Beeson was plunged tied to a fucking sled Jesus into Christ. freezing water. The dog saved his ass. Uh, wow. Spilled him out. Thank um, dog. When he got to the banker, the dude was in the advanced stages of tuberculosis and the only thing that could be done was take him back to Anchorage for essentially hospice care. Yeah. But it was doubtful they'd even reach Anchorage since they now only had one driver and one team. Luckily, just by sheer chance in the middle of the damn wilderness, they happened to cross paths with Leonard Seppala, who was leading four sleds and 43 dogs. Mm-hmm. Seppala volunteered to break away from the pack and carry Beeson and the dying banker back to Anchorage. And I'm starting to think that Alaska might not be as big as they say it is. Like, Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, how are they pulling this off? <laughs> like, there's only like 12 people in Alaska. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so Beeson wrapped up the fragile vials of serum and padding and insulation, enough that the package weighed 20 pounds by the time it was all secure, put it on a train, and shipped it off to Nanana. And now Governor Scott Bone had to make the call as to which of the risky delivery methods he'd use, plane or dog sled. He initially leaned towards the plane just because it was like, you know, it's, it's the technology of the future. Right. This is the way of the future, you know. Maybe it's God telling us. Uh, yeah. But like, as the hours ticked by, he started to realize how disastrously bad things could go if anything went wrong. Mm, yeah. And the weather was turning against them, too. See, to make things even, even worse, a cold front had been blowing in and travel through Alaska was at a standstill. Mm. Um, the temperatures in the Alaskan interior were at their lowest point in 20 years. Okay. Yeah. In Canada's Yukon Territory to the east, temperatures were hitting minus 70. So we're going with the dogs. The thing is, minus 70 was doing the unthinkable. Remember how I said that the male drivers were the hardest motherfuckers? Yeah. And they just went through anything? Yeah, they're not even going out in this. It was cold enough to shut down deliveries of water and mail. Mm. Yeah. Okay. That's pretty intense. Just due to the cold alone. 
And that's the kind of cold that will actually make biplanes fall out of the sky. Yeah. Meanwhile, a different weather Bi-planes. system. What's? I'm just thinking about gay planes. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Sorry, come on. Oh, they got the two wings, oh, yeah, you yeah. know? <laughs> and these fuckers have open cockpits. Yeah. Yeah. The gay planes. God damn it. <laughs> so meanwhile, a different weather system was battering the coast where Nome is with gale force winds and heavy snowfall. Yeah. And the three open planes in Fairbanks all had open cockpits. Mm-hmm. Also, it's fucking dark as hell. And this is 1925. Yeah. Uh, the U.S. Postal Service didn't even attempt night flights anywhere in the U.S. until 1923. And then it was a whole production, setting up lights on the ground and shit. Like, right. it was a whole production. Despite how very badly certain interests want to deliver the serum by plane, to do so would have been fucking stupid. It would just yep. be very, very stupid. The pilot would have no light. Stupid no, and insane. Insane. No radio to warn about approaching blizzards. An open cockpit in minus 70 degree temperatures. And also, just to top it off, Alaska wasn't very accurately mapped yet. <laughs> and, and like one of the last times that that dude Roy it's a Darling, recipe for disaster yeah one of the last times that that dude Roy Darling flew a plane he crashed into the fucking ocean in Maryland yeah so so, so Bone decided to go with the dogs let's get to throw him a bone throw him a bone throw him a bone yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and this was safer although that's an extremely relative term here the mail trail from Nanana to Nome ran through some extreme environments from Nanana, the trail followed the Tanana River 137 miles west until it converged with the Yukon. From there, another 230 miles on or along the river to Kaltag. Those 367 miles were through the interior. The white silence Jack London described. That super cold shit. Yeah. From Kaltag, the, river, the trail rose into the mountains and along the 90 mile, uh, a 90-mile portage of plateau, forest, and river that spilled out at the Bering Sea coast. While the interior was still silent and cold, the coast was often stormy and treacherous. Snow was icy and hard, and violent wind blew unimpeded with barely any trees for cover. The trail followed the Bering Coast along Norton Sound for 208 miles across shifting fields of ice through lagoons, rivers, and wind tunnels referred to as blowholes. Just like, you know, holes in the rock and ice where it's just wind just fucking rips through there, it can knock you over, it can mm-hmm. do all sorts of shit. The only refuge from the wind, besides climbing into one's own sled, was were roadhouses set up by entrepreneurs, which is a weird life to have. Yeah. But many of the roadhouse owners were like grumpy angels to the drivers along the trail, although I don't know if I trust them. Yeah. I don't know if I trust a roadhouse owner. <laughs> yeah, you know, whatever. I'm not going to judge. The point is that the trail contained every single type of danger one could face, every environment, every hazard. Uh, if you were if you were driving a dog sled, which would you pick? Like the supernatural cold and silence of the interior, or the violent winds and moving ice of the coast? Interior, fuck the wind. Yeah, yeah. We'll see. Yeah, we'll see, we'll see if you change your answer, by the way. Okay. <laughs> I don't know what I. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. <clears throat> I think I'd probably go with the coast. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I don't. The cold, cold's crazy. The silence too. You go crazy. Man will go mad out there. There's no such thing as true silence, is there? No, but. Fucking yeah! Minus seventy degrees. Ice. Right. All the water in the atmosphere is frozen. Every sound you make is just like echoing for miles. Yeah. Yeah, it's weird. It almost feels like something otherworldly. Yes. Like an experience that shouldn't a person shouldn't yeah. have on planet Earth. Yeah. Dude. You know. I mean, like in this book, they were talking about how in some of that extreme cold, like that negative eighty area, you uh, 
like your spit instantly vaporizes if you spit it out. Yeah. Because it's just the temperature difference just, it's like the laws of physics change. They do. Yeah, and they literally do. It's yeah. crazy. Yeah. It, I, I like that way of describing it. Like it feels otherworldly. Yeah. Like a different planet almost. Yeah. It, but, um, you know, it literally just had to be done. And the governor knew it was the only way. But instead of having only one team meet Sepala halfway, Bone decided there should be a relay of the fastest drivers in Alaska so the serum could travel night and day with no rest. Mm-hmm. You want to read this telegram? Please engage relay dog teams to carry antitoxin to Tanana and thence to Ruby, there to be met by team from Nome. Stop. Please expedite. Situation reported serious. Stop. Territory will meet expense. Then Bone sent another telegram to Dr. Welsh and Nome giving the go signal. Thompson, the Fairbanks newspaper man, was pissed about the decision and wrote a super bitchy editorial. Governor Bone has evidently taken charge. Fairbanks is standing by ready with airships and men to cut Nome's waiting time in half if Washington wires the orders go. Fairbanks, only four hours away by airship, must sit by the fire and vision the Nome babies and their pioneering parents strangling and dying most horrible deaths and no help for them. It almost makes a pioneer see red. (laughs) It goes on. Fairbanks could help Nome or its people would smash trying to if Washington could listen to Delegate Sutherland and realize that the friendly North has passed from the dog team stage into the airship class. The dog's a noble animal, man's best friend. He sticks and he'll go through with everything he has in him. But along some lines, he has his limits. He will haul himself blind and misshapen for man, his master, work for nothing and steal his food, anxious to serve and loyal all the time. But it is demonstrated beyond a shadow of a doubt that in cases of great emergency, the dog should be allowed to sit by the fire and dream old days over again, while gasoline and flying machines do the work that kills him. Bro, you don't have any airships. You've got a convertible fucking biplane and a dude with some flying experience who's already crippled from putting a plane into the fucking ocean. Chill the fuck out and let the dogs handle this. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. The dogs have got this. Doctor uh, Governor Bone had decided, in stark contrast to many of European descent, he let the dogs him, out. Yeah, but I told you we're not. I know we're yeah. not. Yep. But he did. Governor Bone had decided, in stark contrast to many of European descent before him, to put his faith in the wisdom of Alaska's natives. The vast majority of the mushers who had risked their lives were Athabascans and Inuit. And as the Salisburys write in *The Cruelest Smiles*, if the serum could rescue Nome from the ravages of an ancient plague then its safe arrival by dog sled would be a testament to the hard-learned survival skills and spirit of the Athabascans and Inuit. Yeah, like most of the mushers were were Indians. Mm -hmm. The governor instructed the Northern Commercial Company to engage its best drivers across the interior and have them ready to go immediately. At the roadhouse in Minto, a 21-year-old Athabascan named Edgar Callens was recovering from a long ride and looking forward to taking time off. But before the sweat on his gloves had dried, he had turned around and headed for Tolvana, to wait for the package to take it to Manly Hot Springs. That's a, you know. Manly Hot That's a place. Manly Hot Springs. 59 miles west, another native driver, Johnny Folger, would take the package to Tanana, the geographical center of Alaska, where the Yukon and Tanana rivers converged. From there, the package was relayed down the line to the villages along the Yukon. Callens, Nine Mile Cabin, Cochrane's, and Ruby, where other men were ordered to prepare. A stocky Athabascan named Sam Joseph and Harry Pitka 27, a male driver born in a spruce bow tent and raised by a medicine man. Pitka had learned of the relay while his wife was stitching moccasins next to him. Although they were severely broke and having a really rough go of it, Pitka volunteered without a moment's notice to take the serum 30 miles to Ruby. 
Okay, a Cody type. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> On January 28th, 1925, Leonard Seppolo woke to the phone ring, ringing. It was Mark Summer telling Seppolo it was time to head out. The sled was already packed with supplies and food. Earlier in the week, Constance Seppolo had frozen and wrapped individual servings of pre-cooked beans, ground beef, and hardtack that her husband could quickly warm up on the trail. Everything was ready. So Leonard put on his mukluks and parka, went outside to ready the sled, and the dogs had heard the phone and so they were already keyed up, knowing it was time to run. It's yeah, you got a job to do. Yeah. Seppola harnessed 20 dogs with Togo at the front, which was a big team for such a light load. Mm-hmm. So they could fucking, that's a fast team. Yeah. Um, yeah, with Togo at the front. The noise of the dogs could be heard from miles around. So by the time Seppola was ready to go, a small crowd had gathered to see him off. And Seppola was mentally preparing himself for the journey. Not only did he have the longest leg of the relay to travel, but the most difficult, the windswept ice of the Norton Sound. There was also the probability of a blizzard or worse. And the ice breaking up and carrying him off to sea. Because like when I say shifting ice, it's sea ice that could just break. And Yeah. Yeah. But for now, the temperature was downright balmy 20 degrees below zero. <laughs> wow. It's <laughs> warm. And the wind was calm. Seppla said goodbye to Constance and his daughter Sigrid. He gave a shout and the huskies dug in. With such a light load and 20 huskies pulling it, the sled barely touched the snow as they speeded off at top speed away from the Seppla's cabin and through Nome. The whole town was out to see him off, cheering and hollering as this motherfucker comes absolutely screwing down Front Street. No, guys, go back inside. You're going to get each other sick. <laughs> Sex faint. <laughs> uh, yeah, he's just, he's just fucking 20 dollars Larry Seppel. just yeah. going down. For, for a brief moment, it was just as if the glory days of the All-Alaska sweepstakes had returned. Right. Now, that is a lovely moment. Yeah. At full tilt, a sled is a hard and dangerous thing to ride, always on the verge of tipping, bouncing, or jackknifing. But Togo responded to Seppola's commands as if bound by invisible reins. As he left town, eventually the diminutive Scandinavian disappeared against the night, and like all at once, all the crowd's cheers just went silent as they yeah. realized what the fuck was happening. But in, in um, Seppola's head, I have to imagine that it, it sounded something like this. Lyrically, that song is just so perfect, and I'm so glad that fucking Trent Reznor and Karen O did a cover of it. Yeah, yeah, it's because the let let's it doesn't fit the tone. It's a little too cocky. Mm-hmm. That's it's a really cool cover. Yeah. <laughs> On the other end of the trail, however, things were already getting fucked. Earlier that morning, and we're talking like 3 a.m. here in Nanana, on the other side of the trail, Wild Bill Shannon was waiting with his lead dog Blackie and the rest of the team for the train carrying the serum to arrive. And you don't get the nickname Wild Bill just because your name was William. Oh, no. Wild Bill Shannon had earned it. And he had told the postmaster, if people are dying, let's get on with it, and planned to leave that night with his nine-dog team. He would do his 52-mile run across the interior tonight no matter what. And by morning, either he and his dogs would be dead, or the serum would reach the next waypoint. It was 50 below zero. A small crowd gathered, gathered to see him off from Nanana, 
and on the other side of the tracks stood 40 white crosses for the Athabascans who had died in the flu epidemic seven years prior. Mm. When the serum arrived, Wild Bill and Blackie took off and headed down the trail, which had been nearly ruined by horses, making the snow uneven and likely to tip the sled. So Wild Bill made a dangerous decision. He brought the dogs on top of the frozen river. Lead dog Blackie narrowly avoided an unseen hole big enough to swallow the whole team. And by the time they got off the ice, like there's a couple different types of ice. There's like overflow, mm-hmm. which is, you know, where water comes through the ice and then like freezes, but like it's kind of not totally frozen. And so you can like break and get all wet and like, or it is new ice that can just fall into the fucking running water underneath it. The worst though is when it freezes and then like the fucking water stops flowing for some reason, gets blocked by ice or whatever. And then you just have like a cavern that you're not getting out of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, that's the bad, that's the bad stuff. By the time they got off the river, four of the pups on the team, bear, cub, Jack, and jet were now wavering in their steadiness. The temperature kept dropping and wild bill knew that he couldn't maintain. He needed heat or his entire team would die himself included. He felt his cognition changing and he knew he was becoming hypothermic. Uh. Yeah, not good. not good. Cause it makes you go crazy. Yeah. You go straight up fucking crazy. Also like to realize that your death is imminent unless you do something like now soon. Yeah. Like that'll also put your brain in a, in a scramble yeah, state that absolutely. is not like how it normally is. Yeah. So he fought this by getting off the sled and running alongside Blackie at the at front, just running to get his yeah. blood moving, but it, it, it worked, but it only did so much. And his, his mind started wandering into hyperthermic daydreaming. And he was like slapping his arms against his sides to try and keep the blood circulating. Yeah. And he knew that the only way he was going to survive is if he just got the, just did the next 30 miles to the roadhouse at Minto. And uh, he had to reach it before he lost control of himself and his dogs. Yeah. Just got to keep going. Uh-huh. Holy shit. You know, sometimes it'd be like that. Sometimes it'd be like that. At 3 a.m., Wild Bill stumbled into Johnny Campbell's roadhouse. Campbell took one look at Wild Bill and knew what was happening. His face was black with frostbite. Yeah. Um, His dog's mouths were stained with fucking blood uh, from capillaries in their lungs bursting from the cold. The thermometer uh, read 62 degrees below zero outside. Shannon warmed up for four hours and then had to continue. 22 more miles. Three of the pups had to be left at Campbell's roadhouse, and Wild Bill was down to six dogs. He made it to Tulvana and handed the serum off to Edgar Callens. Uh, Wild Bill rushed back to Campbell's Roadhouse instead of like sleeping or resting. He went right back to Campbell's Roadhouse to try and save the pups, but they died shortly afterwards. No. Yeah. Um, the puppies. Yeah. Wild Bill said later, uh, quote, if you want to read it or I can do it. If you- what those dogs did on the run to Nome is above valuation. I claim no credit for myself. The real heroes of that run were the dogs of the teams that did the pulling. Dogs like Cub and Jack and Jet that gave their lives on an errand of mercy. I can't tell you yet whether I'll be able to save Bear or not. He's in pretty bad shape and it looks like I may lose him. And uh, no record exists of Bear's fate. Uh-huh. Chances are he probably never walked again or never ran again. I'm going to choose to believe that he lived and he was a spoiled doggy. Me too. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just going to choose. Yeah, I'm going to choose to believe that. So by now, the story of the great race of mercy had captured the attention of the entire United States. Like shit like this does. It was the big story. The eyes of the world, the eyes of the country were on a place they had never heard of before. Mm -hmm. Like most of them probably had never even thought of Alaska before. Yeah. But it was the huge story. And in Nome, the situation was only getting worse. The epidemic was spreading faster than initially thought. And now the mayors and others, and now the mayor and others had joined the call for the rest of the antitoxin to be airlifted in. 
but Governor Bone would not budge. And like the Washington Post ran the headline, epidemic grows graver, city begs officials to send aid, to send aid by air. But Governor Bone was firm in his decision. He also knew he had to be a politician about this. And so he instructed Nome to hire more drivers to do a relay on the way back, which would essentially cut Leonard Seppala out of the story completely. Uh-huh. But it made sense. Seppala was the best, but he's still just one dude. You need more than one. Yeah. Like this, however, created some problems. One, there wasn't anyone else who could be trusted to bring it over the shifting ice of the Norton Sound. And two, Seppala was gone. He was just out there. Right. But he's just fucking going. Yeah. <laughs> so the new plan relied upon a driver with the serum finding Seppala along the trail, which was really hard to do in a blizzard, mm-hmm. which it was. Just blizzards coming and shit. Ed Roan, Charles Olson, and Gunnar Kassen were hired. All told, the serum run now involved 20 drivers and 150 dogs. So Edgar Callens had taken the serum off Wild Bill and made it to Manly Hot Springs with relatively few mishaps. Although according to newspaper reports, his hands froze to the sled and boiling water had to be poured over them to get him unstuck. Mm-hmm. Apart from that, he's good. Ah. Yeah. The next few handoffs went smooth. And then was Charlie Evans' turn. Evans was the 12th driver, and his run began at Bishop Mountain. It followed the Yukon River through an area where the Bending River makes rough and uneven ice flows. Ten miles into the run, where the Koyukuk converges, converges with the Yukon, there's a large stretch of overflow, liquid water covering the trail. The dogs managed to avoid the water, but the steam rising from the relatively warm water created thick, cottony ice fog. Zero visibility and literally a fog of ice, like ice crystals, and you're coming out of there cold as hell. Mm-hmm. Um, Evans pushed through, but as he got through the ice fog, he saw that his dogs were faltering. He got to the village of Koyukuk, where his father was waiting, just to see, you know. And Evans' father like was out on a porch, and he implored him to stop the sled and come warm up, but... Charlie replied that if he stopped, he didn't know if he'd be able to wake his dogs up afterwards. Mm-hmm. So he just had to fucking keep keep moving. Five miles past Koyukuk on a wooded ridge a thousand feet above the river, Charlie saw that two of his dogs' hind legs were turning blue. They stumbled on until one of his lead dogs collapsed on the ground. Evan staggered to the front, cut the dog's lines, and placed him in the sled. Then this absolute fucking hard ass wrapped the harness around his own shoulders and pulled the remaining 10 miles to Nolato. Wow. Yeah. They made it, but both of his lead dogs had died. Um, when asked about the run 50 years later, Charlie Evans simply replied, it was real cold. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So from Evans, the serum passed to Miles Gongnangnan. Gongnangnan. Okay. Miles Gongnangnan. All right. Yeah. He was to bring the serum. He's Miles. If I have to say his name again, he's just Miles. Yep. He was to bring the serum to Shaq Tulik and hopefully find Leonard Seppala there. But if not, it was to go to a Russian named Henry Ivanov, who was not the ideal man for the job. But he would do his best. Seppala was not at Shaq Tulik, and so the serum was passed to Ivanov. Seppala was nearby, however. And against everyone's advice, Seppala and Togo had taken the shortcut direct across the Norton Sound, across the breaking ice and shit. The wind was behind him, and a storm was clearly brewing. And he was making incredible time. Leonard and Togo had covered 170 miles in the last three days. Now he knew that, although he couldn't see it through the haze of windswept snow, Shaktulik was only minutes away. He wanted to be off the Bering Sea before the storm hit full force. As far as Seppala knew, he still had more than 100 miles to go before he reached the serum. That's a lot of miles. It's a lot of damn miles, dude. It's like a shitload of miles. Yeah. So suddenly, Togo and the other dogs picked up speed and started racing towards something. It was another sled, and it wasn't moving. The driver was standing in the middle of the team, waving his arms. 
a reindeer had wandered onto the trail and the mystery team of dogs had totally fucked up their lines trying to get at the reindeer. Ah, and yeah. Seppala assumed that the arm-waving dude was just looking for help untangling his team and he was like, I can't stop, man. You have to, I, got, I got shit to do. I'm sorry. But it was Henry Ivanov and he uh, like immediately knew who the maniac cruising down the Bering Coast with 20 Huskies was. There's, yeah. It's only one dude. Like, <laughs> right. So Henry Ivanov ran towards Seppala shouting, the serum, the serum, I have it here. And like Seppala had already passed him by the time he like realized what the hell he was saying. And yeah. so he like turned around because he's not expecting to see it for another hundred miles. Right? right. Oh, I'd be so happy. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> like, oh, thank God. Um, there is the slight undertone of like, I think Seppala was kind of disappointed that he didn't do the whole thing himself because he knew he could. Yeah. And like, it would have been insane. It like, would have been insane. Yeah. Yeah. But at the same time, you got to get that shit there as fast as possible. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So I, Ivanov informed Seppala that since he left Nome on the 28th, the outbreak had worsened and there was a new plan. Seppala needed to bring the serum back across the sound and hand it over to Charlie Olson. Alarmed at the news, Seppala immediately grabbed the serum and turned around. But since he had crossed the Norton Sound that morning, the route had become much more dangerous. The wind was building, it was dark again, and a storm was coming in fast and hard. Seppala, when isn't there? Never. Like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> At every point in the story, it's like there's a big storm coming. Yeah, it's just, it's 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 cliche. Yeah, but it's also what was going on. Honey, you got a big storm. <laughs> so Seppala had to make a decision whether to take the shortcut again or to go around, adding on an extra day to the trip. That was out of the question to Seppala. Like his only daughter, Sigrid, was only eight years old, and Seppala had no way of knowing whether she had been added to the growing list of patients. Right? right. Like he's got personal stakes in here. Like he's gonna take the shortcut. And this is that shit where years earlier, Togo had done the trick with the pulling of the ice flows mm-hmm. when he tossed him across and he, yeah. Zeppelin knew they wouldn't be able to see or hear the ice at all because storm, wind, right? And dark, yeah. you know? He was going to have to place his life and the lives of many others entirely in Togo's care. Like, you just got to assume this dog knows what you got to do. Yeah. He's going to do it. You literally cannot see or hear whether the ice is breaking up. Dog got to do it. Yeah. Just hold on and hope you got a good dog. And as Seppala feared, once on the ice, he was blind and deaf. It was only like 30 below, but the wind chill was pushing it to like 80 below zero. Occasionally, he would lean over the sled for any indication that the ice was cracking up. They seemed to be good. Togo was unfazed. He held his head low and his body level in deep concentration, keeping a straight course despite the hummocks and slippery patches of ice before them. At 8 p.m., team pulled up to Isaac's point. Seppala still had 50 miles to cover, but the dogs needed rest. He fed them salmon and seal blubber while he warmed the package of the serum. And outside, the ice exploded like rifle shots as the storm rolled in. Jeez. The next morning, the storm would be battering the coast with winds of at least 65 miles per hour for the final sprint back to Nome. Seppala left that morning at the height of the storm, and an old Inuit dude pulled him aside right before he left and said, maybe maybe you go closer to the shore. And it was wise advice, and Seppala uncharacteristically took it. Instead of just like straight across, you know, yeah. the bay... Hug the hug the shore a little bit, bud. It's it's bad out there. It was forty below zero now, and the ice he had crossed a day earlier had already broken up. Around him, he saw cakes of ice threatening to come loose. The cracks in the ice were threatening the team. The cracks in the ice were coming closer and closer to the team. Like, and you can literally see him, like, yeah, you know. Uh, and the ice was moving, and around them, jets of seawater were shooting up through the breaks in the ice. Just like imagine that fucking scene. It's in. It's a it's a vibe. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Togo zigzagged around the weak points in the ice and several times he like put on a burst of speed towards the shore, avoiding an unseen danger. Like if Togo just all of a sudden just books books a hard right. 
Yeah, there's a reason. There's a, there's a reason. And Leonard would never know what that danger would be. Just, and he Probably was up to Yep. A few hours later, that entire section of ice would be blown out to sea. Wow. Yeah. Once across, Leonard stopped the team and rubbed the dogs down, brushing off a layer of ice that had formed over their faces, tending the cuts on their feet, and drying off their paws. Their leg wasn't done yet. They still had to climb a series of ridges up 1,200 feet to the summit of Little McKinley. They have to climb a mountain now. Yeah, yep. wow. Okay, great. Many mushers considered this the toughest part of the trail. The exposed ridges stretch out over eight miles. The downgrades are steep, and there's little time to recover from one ridge to the next. Ugh, I hate it. By the time the summit is reached, the team would climb about 5,000 feet. I hate it. Leonard and Togo's team were doing this with less than five hours of rest. After they traveled for four and a half days and covered 260 miles. But they fucking did it. They just did it. And 13 yeah. hours later, Seppala handed the serum off to Charlie Olson. It's like, Sometimes you gotta just keep going. It's great. Like, you see, like... A, a, what other choice do you have? You don't. You just but gotta to do keep it. keep going. And, like, the, the fucking leg that Seppala did was so insane. And you saw, like, it was dangerous <clears throat> the whole way. Dogs yes. died. Or got hurt or, like, almost died. Nah. Didn't lose anybody. Just, just fucking did it. Since, co- since picking up the serum... The team covered 135 miles, more than two and a half times the distance covered by any other team, at top speed in blizzard conditions over heaving ice. They survived the crucible of Norton Sound and cut a day off the critical time schedule. But looking at them, you never know. All they needed was a little bit of rest, and then they were just, they were just good to go again. Yeah. But the serum was in other hands now, and it was only 78 more miles to Nome. The blizzard had turned a bit more insane with 80 mile an hour winds, and the health board made the call that the relay had to be paused because it was just too dangerous both for the teams and for the serum. Mm. While that message had reached Ed Roan, who was supposed to do the final leg, it didn't get to Gunnar Kassen, who was uh, the second to last driver. Yeah. Gunnar was a colleague of Seppala's and like his polar opposite. They came from the same area of Norway, but Kassen was six foot two, gruff and introverted. Hulking is a word used to describe him. Ah. Uh. Yeah. Gunnar had picked for his lead dog, a creature that Seppala considered second rate at best. <laughs> Balto. Balto was slower than the other Huskies, and Seppala really didn't like him. He told, because uh, he trained all the dogs for the mining company. Like, Seppala knew Was he, all like, them. really strong, though, and smart? He wasn't that sm- He wasn't smart. But Kassin saw, saw something in Balto that no one else did. Balto may not have been as fast or intelligent as the other Huskies, but he was steady and strong. Mm-hmm. Steady. Like, he, a lot of ways he seemed to really reflect Gunnar Kassin, too. Yeah. And when Charlie Olson handed the serum off to Kassen, it was clear that Olson had a rough go of it. Olson warned Kassen that however bad Gnome needed the serum, this was not the fucking time to head out. Gunnar Kassen agreed. To a point. Two hours later, the wind hadn't died down, and if anything, it had gotten stronger. But if he didn't leave now, the trail to Port Safety, 34 miles away, would be impassable due to the snowdrifts. Like, he had to go right into a blizzard, which was just something you didn't do. You just, blizzards cover the trail in snow. You cannot see. They cover the scent of the trail. Like, you, you got to not do that. Yeah. And five miles into the run, Gunnar Kasten's fears were realized. The snow was up to his chest and the dogs were stuck in it. They had lost the trail. He had to walk out front with Balto, like breaking trail and like trying to get some indication of what direction they were looking in. And Balto was inexperienced and didn't know this trail at all. But he kept his head down, sniffing for the faint scent of the dogs that had ran the trail before the snows covered it up. And eventually, after what felt like hours, Balto found the scent and broke into a run. They made it to Toplock Mountain and over it, something most mushers would only do in the daytime, not night during a blizzard with hurricane force gusts through the wind tunnels. 
After coming off the mountain on the flats, the wind created whiteout conditions and Kasson had to give total control over to the inexperienced Balto. Balto overshot the roadhouse by two miles. <laughs> <laughs> and then Gunnar Kasson made an extremely controversial decision. He decided to push on 10 more miles to port safety where Ed Rohn was, was waiting instead of turn around the two miles to go to the roadhouse. Yeah. He's like, no, fuck it. I'll do it. Yeah, they can, they can take it. While crossing a wind tunnel, a gust slammed Gunnar Kasson's sled into a drift. Mm-hmm. He was buried. Uh, he crawled back to the sled to ride it and untangle the dog lines. He patted the sled down to make sure the serum was still intact and couldn't find it. Fuck. Yeah. Just got, it got knocked Fuck. off. Yeah. It was gone. Fuck. Like 30 miles from Nome. Fuck. <laughs> and he, cr- I mean, he crawled through the snow probing for the package, just burying his head all, all over. And eventually he did find it and everything was intact. It was fine. But it came real close to just being the absolute insult, most insult to injury bullshit, 30 miles from, yep. Holy fuck. Yeah. Yeah, he knew he had to, I cannot imagine his panic. (laughs) Yeah, for real, Like, I mean, I've panicked at losing things that were important. Yeah. But this takes it to a whole other level. And like, no one one really admits this, but you also know that there's a pride thing with these guys too. Yeah. Like- I'm going to be the guy who takes, who goes out through the blizzard, you well, know? Well, it wouldn't have been able to get done without that spirit, you know? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Have have guys like that. Absolutely. We're like, yeah, I can do it. So after that, after he finds it, it's like it marked a turning point. Yeah. Now the wind was at his back and he pushed on to forest safety. When he got there, it was the middle of the night and Ed Roan was asleep. Yeah. And he had got the message to not go out during the blizzard. Right. All the lights were out because Roan was told to hold, hold off and like- Kasson knew that it was going to take Roan like a fucking while to uh, get everything ready immediately too. Right. If he woke him up. So he just kept going. He just fucking well, kept going. Yeah. And around 5.30 a.m., Gunnar Kasson and Balto pulled up to Front Street in Nome where onlookers saw him collapse in a hug around Balto just muttering, damn fine dog. Aw. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Balto's fucking That's cool, nice. dude. Balto's yeah. good. Balto's fucking sick. Yeah. I'll give it to Balto, man. Damn fine dog. Yeah. When Welch unwrapped the package, he saw that the serum was frozen, but the vials were all intact. By 11 a.m., the serum was thawed and ready for use. And it worked. And there was more on the way. However, they feared that it wouldn't get there fast enough, and once again begged Governor Bone to divert half the serum to Fairbanks for an experimental flight. It turned into a whole shit show with both sides, like, essentially planning to, like, physically fight the other should it come to that on the trail. Okay. Like, there's, like, orders, like, you guard this goddamn serum with your life. They're going to come for it. Like, it, yeah. it got weird for a second there. Yeah. Really <laughs> sounds like it. And, like, eventually, Bone relented and diverted half the serum to Fairbanks. As the what aviators, happened? What's that? What happened? <laughs> well, as the aviators got excited to be heroes, too, well, they tried to start the plane. <laughs> They tried to start the plane. They tried to start the plane. Well, this time it like started and it caught one of the mechanic's sleeves on his coat and tossed him 10 feet into the air. And then it sputtered out. They never got it started. Yeah, that's a sign. Yeah, they literally, they couldn't even start the fucking plane in the air. There you go. (laughs) Yep. Yeah, they ended up not being able to get off the ground. Newspaper man William Thompson graciously admitted defeat in an editorial. We believe in the airship and we believe in the dog. We know that even an ordinary airship can make 60 miles an hour and we know that a dog cannot. Where the dog has it over the airship is that the dog knows nothing about horizons, visibilities, temperatures, gasoline. All he knows is to obey his master's voice and march. The burden of proof is today on the airship. 
The dogs are running and every hour getting closer to the goal. The airship will go when it can, but the dog seems to go whether he can or not. We take our hat off to the dog. <laughs> Hats off to the dog. Hey, to the dog. <laughs> Fuck yeah. The first batch of serum did exactly as planned and bought Gnome enough and bought Gnome time enough for the full complement to arrive by a second relay, using many of the same drivers as the first. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. They did it again. <laughs> they just did it. They just did it all again. Yeah. And on February 15th, Ed Roan completed a 90-mile run through a blizzard and delivered the second shipment. His lead dog, Star, had fallen through a fissure while crossing Golven Bay and was badly injured, returning to Nome in the basket of the sled. The entire operation was a success, and on February 21st, 1925, the quarantine on Nome was lifted. Gunnar Kasson and Balto became media darlings. Yeah. Balto became a bona fide superstar, and this caused like some bitter controversy among the other mushers. Some accused Kasson of deliberately pushing his dogs harder than necessary to take the glory. A statue of Balto was built in Central Park in New York City, and he became the symbol of the 1925 serum run to Nome. And that pissed people off. Because they, Seppalus stayed out of it mostly. He he wrote a little bit that he was fucking real pissed that Togo didn't get the credit he deserved. I mean, he did, but like, mm-hmm. but he stayed out of the actual drama. But th- right. there was a lot of other people who were saying that fucking Kasson stole the glory from Seppala and stole the glory from Togo. Yeah. Which sucks. Like, it's, that sucks, you know? They deserve glory too, though. Yeah, absolutely. Seppala and Togo probably would have shared in the media adoration, but Seppala was late getting back to town because uh, Togo and another husky just fucked off chasing a reindeer for a couple days. <laughs> Why am I not surprised? <laughs> yeah. yeah. He's a husky. He's what he's going to do. But honestly, it was probably for the best, though, because Gunnar Kasson and Balto were brought down to Hollywood to make films and be stars, mm-hmm. a position which did not suit the introverted and gruff Gunnar Kasson. Yeah. And he returned to Alaska and like before he went back to Alaska, a pay dispute led to Balto and the rest of the team being sold to a promoter. Weird. They were treated with the care you'd expect a Hollywood promoter to treat animals. Not very well. They were turned. To be honest. In, they were turned into a literal sideshow. Yeah. Malnourished, kept in cages, neglected, and abused. Fuck that. Yep. After a couple of years, a businessman from Cleveland, uh, George Kimball, was there and recognized the dogs. Uh, that's fuck. That's fucking Balto. Yeah. Are you fucking kidding me? He went back to Cleveland and like started a campaign to raise. A Rescue couple thousand Balto. dollars to, to save the team. Um, and he he did. He, he came up with, with support from the Cleveland Kennel Club. Kennel Club. Kimball bought the team for $2,000 and moved them to Cleveland. When they got there, 15,000 people showed up. A band played and Balto and his team were put in harnesses once more and demonstrated their skills with a roller sled. Um, they still lived in a zoo for the re- remainder of their years. Well, that's unfortunate. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm sure they were treated well there and yeah. like, looked after. But like, that sucks. Yeah. That that whole thing sucks. And like Gunnar Kasson never, ever talked about the serum run except once when his grandniece, when his grandniece asked him about the picture he always kept of him and Balto. And he just said simply, I'm going to tell you this once and only once. If it wasn't for Balto, I wouldn't be alive today. That's it. That's all he fucking said. Wow. Yeah. Damn. I, f- I feel fucking bad for those guys. Yeah. Yeah. They're goddamn heroes. Yeah. Yeah. Despite not being part of the immediate photo shoots, Seppala and Togo found their own fame. They traveled the country like nonstop giving demonstrations and advocating for the sport of dog mushing. Mm-hmm. They toured a lot. Uh, they gave demonstrations racing a dog sled around the ice rink in Central Park and all across the East Coast. Yeah, I mean, they've done enough dangerous shit. Yeah. They'll have fun now. Yeah. 
in Maine, Seppala met a dog breeder named Elizabeth Ricker, who would also be his biographer. And together, the two of them started the sport of dog sled, sled racing in the Northeast. Cool. Seppala, and to- Seppala had Togo live with Ricker, and he divided his time evenly between Alaska and Maine. Mm-hmm. And Seppala says that one of the hardest things he ever had to do was to leave Togo behind for the first time. It was a sad parting on a cold gray March morning when Togo raised a small paw to my knee as if questioning why he was not going with me. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Togo was getting old. Like he was 12 when he did the serum run. Like yeah. That was his last his last run. But also, Seppala literally split his time between Alaska and Maine to hang out with Togo. That's awesome. Those are on opposite sides of the damn world. Yeah. <laughs> and five years later... Togo was having trouble walking and was starting to be in chronic pain. Mm-hmm. Leonard finally had to make the hardest call of his life and say goodbye when Togo was 17. It's a good long life. Yep. Also, like, that's a lot of wear and tear yeah. on body to, like, go through all of that. Yeah, dude. So to survive that long. Like, 17. That's, that's he was hardy. eating salmon and seal blubber, dude, and working out all the time. Yep. Yep. And he's a husky. Huskies are tough as shit. Mm-hmm. But, like, Togo never left Leonard Seppala, though. One reporter wrote many years later, In the depths of his keen gray eyes lives a dog who will never leave. Near the end of his life, when he was 81, Leonard Seppala wrote in his journal, While my trail has been rough at times, the end of the course seems pretty smooth, with downhill going and a roadhouse in sight. And when I come to the end of the trail, I feel that along with my many friends, Togo will be waiting and I know that everything will be all right. Yeah. Nice. He wrote an 81-year-old man writing his fucking journal. Yeah. God damn it. Wow. Just like so many years later. Yeah. Talking about his dog. Yeah. He died. Uh, Leonard Seppala died at the age of 89 in 1965. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Before we talk about the tarot and wrap this up, I want to read a quote from the New York Sun in an editorial immediately after the serum run. Science made the antitoxin that is in Nome today, but science could not get it there. All the mechanical transportation marvels of modern times faltered in the presence of the elements. Other engines might freeze and choke. But that oldest of all motors, the heart, whose fuel is blood and whose spark is courage, never stalls but once. Honestly, I think that that's pretty perfect for the Ten of Wands. Yeah. Like, like really, though. Ten of Wands is like... To me, so... In the Rider Waite Smith deck, the Ten of Wands is a man. He's carrying, you know, a bunch of large pieces of wood, yeah. ten big staffs of wood, and he's got them all in in his arms. And he's sort of hunched over. He's walking away from the viewer, you know, mm-hmm. of the card. And he's sort of like, you know, he he's got his 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 bundle. Yeah. But it's a weary journey, and yeah. ten also being sort of like, it's like the long journey home. Yeah. You know. The home stretch, that aching, painful home stretch when you're so close to being done and having victory and you just got to push a little yeah. fucking further. Yeah, you just got to keep going. That's yeah. that's to me what that is. Yeah, man. Which is the story. Yeah, absolutely. And like, you know, it's a, a Ten of Wands is Saturn in Sagittarius, like the drive to to go to move restricted. Yeah. It's like a, it's a pressure cooker. You right. Know? It's also twenty dollars in a fucking harness. Yep, <laughs> just going even despite the elements. Despite the elements, despite just fucking just doing the goddamn thing because you got it. Yeah, despite the risk. Yeah, the pain. Yep, the weary hands. Yeah, it's a fucking badass story. Yeah, man, I I love it. Like I yeah, the story hits me pretty fucking hard. Oh yeah. Uh, it's just 
it's just heroic, you know, and like incredibly. And the dogs are really like they are the I mean, hats off to Leonard, but hats off to the dogs. Yeah, really. And I mean, all the fucking mushers, all of them just gave the credit to the dogs. Yeah, that's that's who they said. Like Sepolo was grumpy about Togo not getting the credit. He didn't care about his his own credit. Yeah. That it was about the dogs. Right. Which is it's fucking wild, man. Like they are when bonds are strong well, those, bonds between with dogs are fucking crazy. I mean, that's their life. Yeah. You know? They probably spend more fucking time with the dogs and with people. Yeah. You know, so. And the thing like dogs, those dogs knew something was wrong. Like they knew this was not an ordinary run. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like. Yeah. They can sense shit like that. They don't know what. They don't know why, but mm-hmm. they know, oh shit, we got to fucking, we got to get this shit done. Yeah. Master sad about something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've, I've been wanting to tell that story for a while. It's kind of hard to wrap it into a nonsense, bizarre narrative and stuff. It was a right. difficult one, but yeah. I, I really that. enjoyed that. Hell yeah. Well, I think that about does her. I think it does her. And uh, if you guys really enjoyed that, if you find value in what we do, Ooh. we want to give back. Ooh. Oh my God. Do oh you hear God. that? I, I, something on the wind. Ooh. It's ah. it's Hoo Hoo Henderson. Oh my God. Hoo <laughs> Hoo Henderson. Is that you? <laughs> <laughs> Patreon.com <laughs> slash nonsense bizarre. Only five dollars. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Hoo Hoo Henderson, for the Patreon plug. Wow, thank you for that, Hoo Hoo. Yep. We do have a Patreon. We do. We have a bonus series. Five dollars a month will get you access to that. And uh thank you guys so much for listening. And we, we're on all the social media too. Follow us, you'll find us. You know what to do. Yep. Give us a rating and a review if you like it. Only if you like it. Yeah. And take care of yourselves. Don't take freeze care, out there. Take care of your doggies. Take care of your goddamn dogs. And your pets. Pet give, your fucking dogs. Give them a little pet. Pet your kids. <laughs> nah, I'll kick them, kick them outside. <laughs> Peace out. Peace. <laughs>